Okay. Hi, Amy. Muzz, uh, I have someone to introduce you to. Please. For our fifth, sep no, what's the fifth? Well, whatever. It's the fifth episode. Is it? <laughs> I thought it was like, I was like, you know how they say like sept, but then I was thinking septuagenarian and that's not right. That's not right. The fifth episode. Right. The, the, it's quint something. I don't know quintessential <laughs> it is the quintessential episode. that's not, I'm not it. sure we're using that that word right uh yeah i don't know we can look this up and i'll just edit in after me, perfect me saying the right thing yeah so for our quintessential episode <laughs> <laughs> episode five who we got we've got ryan um give me a little background so ryan and I, which is actually quite obvious in the conversation, have been friends for a long time. Chums, yeah. Chums, pals. We uh, met each other because we lived in the same building in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived above her, and she was friends with a friend of mine. She, uh, we just like got on very well, but it actually wasn't until we didn't live sort of in pro that proximity that we became much closer um you moved out of the building Is she it? moved out first right okay and then i moved out got it and then we stayed connected we probably had a bit of a pause in our and then we because it was always a group hangout right because we lived in this building that had three units in it two per unit and yeah. uh there was just this like big group of friends that i kind of i guess was adopted into ish by by Ryan and my roommate at the time and just sort of I was suddenly part of this right. whether I liked it or not yeah that kind of came <laughs> came up when you guys were talking yes yeah uh and um I think it was once we we used, yeah once we stopped living together we we hung out and I I can kind of remember like our first couple solo hangouts I was like oh yeah Ryan yeah Ryan's like a solid like solo hangout person totally have you ever hung out with someone solo when you've only hung out with them in groups before and been like oh my god this is terrible <laughs> besides you damn it uh, i no. knew it um I don't, I don't know maybe maybe or you just the chemistry isn't there. sure yeah yeah it, it can be yeah so the chemistry is there for ryan and i yes you guys had a great great convo it was like a it was it was warm it was like a big comfy blanket the two of you talking we were talking in her apartment yeah. in Olympic Village in Vancouver, British Columbia. You traveled to do this one. I sure did. Yeah. Uh, for a variety of reasons, because I lived there for so long to visit right. people. Right. Primarily, though, to record a conversation with Ryan. Yeah. Who also lets me stay with her. It's amazing. And uh, her dog, Motley, was there. And he kept relatively quiet. He's, he's a hound. Right. So Motley knew this was an, an important conversation. Well behaved. A good boy. Very good boy. <laughs> And um, so Ryan is someone who, uh, and I mean, we talk about this, but she has had experience with um, a very serious illness in her 20s. Yep. And it's not something that we talked about. Uh, I, I was aware of it from other people. We didn't have a conversation about it. And when she, we've started talking a bit more over the years about, because my interest in sort of death and dying, um, the culture around illness and things like that expanded. And we started having conversations in that regard. And then, I, I mean, she started having more 
um, like sharing on a more personal level. Right. Um, and I think she has a lot to offer. Based on this conversation which um, that you guys had, uh, she definitely has an incredible way uh, to to articulate the experience she went through. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that you guys had not talked about it before just because of the flow of the conversation, but it's not like, you know, having a diagnosis like that comes up organically when you're hanging, right? So this very pointed conversation, I think, was... Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, not to say we'd never even acknowledge the fact that she had cancer when she was in her 20s. Right, but you really explored it. Yes. All aspects of it, and it was fascinating. Yes, and I think everyone, li literally every person whose feet walk the earth could learn from this conversation. Totally. And so, you know, if you listen to Ryan, you'll learn a lot. Please listen. But talking today to my friend Ryan, who is very nice, nice enough to, and generous enough, frankly, I think that's true of everyone, to have a chat with me about death and dying on the As I Will It podcast. Um, thanks, Rye. Thanks for, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. I'm really excited to do it. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. um, so I was actually thinking the other day, I was like, how, how long have we been friends for? Like, I think... Ten, 10 years yeah 10 about 10 years I think yeah because when we lived in the same building uh that I like because you moved out of that building in Vancouver to this co-op housing that you're living in, in and I've like, been here for 10 years oh then we've been friends for longer than 10 years yeah yeah okay <laughs> yeah so I also remember that when we met initially because you were living in the bill like in the apartment below me and you were ryan with the loud dog miner yes the loud dog miner who um but that was such a like nickname the compound that housing and i it was such an interesting thing for me because it was a very like open concept, like three separate apartments, but well, not the bottom apartment, but the, the middle and upper apartment. And it was different for me at first because I'm always like, this is my perimeter of my space. And like people don't just walk into it. And and then I'd be like hanging out and I'd be like, oh, hey, Miner. Miner's just there. <laughs> He's wondering what we're serving up for food. Yeah, I guess that's interesting too because I think just sometimes how friendships start, like because Emily and Jess and I all had such a long pre-existing friendship yeah. that I just thought that you belonged in it too. And I think I started treating you like you were in our friend group maybe before you felt like you were. Hey, Amy! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, all right. Well, I mean, listen, that was like not too long after I moved to Vancouver. And Vancouver is not exactly notorious for being <laughs> yeah. easy to make friends. So I was like, I got some friends. I immediately have friends. But also, I don't think that you're what one might consider like a typical BC or Vancouverite in terms of your friendliness and your like, uh, will, like wanting to be social and meet people and hang out. Mm -hmm. And you're from the area, right? Yeah, I grew up in Gibsons, which is a small community. And I think that, you know, in my own personal life and my experience, I have 
really had a strong motivation to find ways to connect to a community. I'm a, a person of mixed heritage. My dad is from Trinidad and Tobago, and my mom is from Vancouver of Norwegian and Scottish background. And so I haven't always been in a community where I felt like a part of it as a visible minority, as a black woman with mixed heritage. I, have a, I feel like I've always had a need to find my place in community. So that's required like stepping out and feeling more comfortable and looking for supports for people who supported me in places that I would feel comfortable. And it's also something that's been a, a really important thing for me to create for other people. So I always find when I meet neat people, I'm always looking to build community. So I, um, I work at UBC and I work to support um, people in building communities and friendships. And I live in a co-op now, and I've always been really um, involved in different boards in the community and just trying to have worked with the Canadian Mental Health Association on building participation in the organization for, um, what are, for participants in the organization. So like, as a personal feeling, I really wanna find a place where I belong and where I fit. And I want to create an energy around me that creates that same feeling for other people. Right. Yeah. Um, so my normal <laughs> for Vancouver, I mean, in my experience, it feels weird sometimes to hear that because I hear people say that about Vancouver and that's not my experience because mm -hmm. I think I very deliberately find the people who are interested in connecting. Like even when we lived at that compound, I felt like I was always the person who knew all the neighbors totally. on the street and you guys would be like, who are you talking to? Oh, that's Dave. His daughter recently went to him. I'm like, oh, hello, Dave. Um, no, that I think that's always been, I mean, that that is absolutely since I've known you. You are the person who knows all the people. Yeah. And knows about all the events and about all the fun things that are happening. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, it, I'm cool to join 10% of the things <laughs> you're out doing. But I also think that our friendship, um, like, formed more once you left, like, once we didn't live. I mean, you, we would do those morning workouts. Yeah. Um, when we both lived at the compound. But it wasn't until, really, you moved down here. I feel like that we connected more on, like, a, oh, we can actually, like have conversations that are a bit more um nuanced and introspective about you know our relationships with people and kind yeah. of get each other yeah and I think that's one of the things too that I always enjoy about a relationship is that some people generally don't want to have conversations that have very much depth mm -hmm. you know or, or sort of are in relationships where that isn't something you know you talk to somebody about what they do for work or who they're dating or what their challenges are in their day-to-day -day life, but sometimes aren't willing to have some of those deeper conversations about who you are, where you're at, where you're going, and and the community that you live in. And so I've always really appreciated that um, you're willing to go a bit deeper, and in fact, a lot deeper. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do for work, Rye? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, okay, you grew up in Gibson, but you were born in Trinidad? Yeah, I was born Trinidad, in Trinidad. Trinidad. And came over when you were quite young, though, right? Yeah, and like when I was like five. Right. And then um, Gibson's until end of high school. Mm -hmm. And then you moved 
I lived in Whistler for a bit, and then I moved to Victoria, and then back to Vancouver. Right. And have never lived back on the Sunshine Coast since you left? No. No. But also, like, still have family and stuff yeah, there. Yeah, still connected there, but not as much. Um, and you, because I, I know that you have your degree in biology, your undergraduate degree, or is it straight biology? Microbiology and immunology. Oh, the tinier biology. <laughs> yeah, the teeny, <laughs> the teeny tiny. She's got her degree in small biology. Yeah. Um, Don't ask me what the heart does. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> Don't, that was not, that's not on the docket. Um, and then... I so one thing I know about you that I don't even know that we've ever really talked about is that you initially intended to become a doctor. Yes. Yeah. So and I think that was also like a big motivator and really exploring that feeling about community that I just knew that in my heart that a lot of the health concerns that I was seeing with like friends or family came from a feeling of like people not being connected, people not being able to be honest with their doctors, not being honest with medical professionals and not really having like a community of comfort to talk about what was really going on. And so I spent a lot of time thinking as a person who is preparing to go to medical school, like that elevator speech that you have to give in the interview, like what is it that you're going to say that makes you a compelling candidate that would be a caring physician and so I think that it sort of put me on a path where like at a certain point in time when do I bring up getting sick is that while I was in that process um, and finishing up my degree and going to apply to medical school in my final year of my immunology degree I just noticed that I had a lump on my neck right that wouldn't go away and it just got like harder and rubberier and I really struggled because when I would go to the doctor and I didn't have a a GP you were in your like 20s at this point I was 28 28 okay yeah Yeah. I was 20 yeah and like so many people don't have a GP particularly at that age like unless you have the one that you had when you were a kid yeah so I was 28 and I went to the doctor at like a walking clinic and they're like, don't worry about it. Like, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, come back and we'll see, like, do you feel sick? Do you feel this? Do you, like, I didn't feel sick. There wasn't anything going on. And then it, can, it just didn't go away. And so I went back to the walk-in clinic several times and they would just continue to brush me off. Like, not in the, like super mean way or anything but just like you're young you're healthy you're fit you're like able to like there's nothing like extreme happening with you um it doesn't seem like anything is wrong and I and I think that just the fact that I was in microbiology and immunology I was like yeah except for this is my lymph node yeah in my lymph system yeah and I know what this is in my neck and where it's it's uh, placed and that it should resolve itself and if it doesn't there's something going on right and so I happen to be pretty uh 
Lucky, I guess, is because I also, from being here, I'm pretty well connected in the community and had a lot of people who were willing to support me. And my father, although he um, had passed away when I was 16, um, was a doctor and my sister's a pharmacist. And my sister and my partner at the time were pretty adamant about like me following up and checking in with it. Right. So as a student at UBC, I was able to check in with the UBC Health Services. Okay. So but prior to that, you were going to like walk in, like mm. the same walk in every time? Were you seeing the same physician or it was just I kind think of so, one yeah. of those? Yeah. 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 Same. But it wouldn't be the same doctor, actually. It would be the same walk in and stuff. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So there was just like one day that I was like, no, it was just like getting it like a little bit bigger and it just shouldn't be that way. So I went to UBC Student Health, and by then, I had actually worked myself into, like, it's funny, I haven't thought about these actual details, details. Of, it, of it. Yeah. Um, worked myself up into quite a frenzy and, like, was sort of like, I need to see somebody there who will take this seriously. And I, I went to UBC Health and um, uh, had an appointment with a doctor there, and I turned on the waterworks like my sister at like I was told to do that by people like you know like I needed to say make, be create some drama to be here's how you get taken seriously this is here yeah like do this thing and I was like okay and so like I mean that was also like it was two scales right like I was starting to get worried myself sure but also it was like you need to make this like People are going to continue to ignore you. And like, I think that was actually eight months of that process of going and trying to get somebody to like, take a look at it. And it's funny now that I, I thought I would never forget the doctor's names too in the process. And you thought I, you would never forget? No. And I don't remember. And you can't remember. I can't remember. It's, I think it's really interesting too, because, and I don't know if this is like a female thing or just at sometimes like I want to be like chill and easy going. Yeah. So even if I'm, I'm like, I feel like maybe you're downplaying the serious, like I'm not just, I'm not just talking about health, like in general, sometimes like I'll do something with a feeling of unease yeah. that later I'm like, you didn't want to do that. Like, or that your reaction was, the way you behaved was different from how you were feeling. And I yeah. wonder why, like, is it important to me to seem chill and cool or like not even from that perspective, like you were, was it just sort of like a, all right, okay, I'm just gonna. I just feel like I remember that it was a moment of being surprised that somebody wouldn't take my feelings or concerns at their face value. It was like that kind of being like shuffled off or something like I am concerned. I have an understanding and then being like these other factors don't support your concerns and you couldn't know better than I know. Oh, right. And therefore you should carry on with your young, healthy life and don't worry about it. And I was like, I'm worried about it. Please take it seriously. Ooh. And just like, you know, there was like, I've probably went to the doctor four times. It's actually making me tear up thinking back to that now. It's making, I, I'm <laughs> like, like, I'm, like, I'm clutching. Yeah. Okay, I, actually, maybe by the time I went in there, I was like, oh my God, like, this is real. Like, yeah. it's not going away. And I went to the doctor and she was like, you know, stop crying. We will get you. I know a doctor we can refer you to and we can do a biopsy and take a look at it. And I got this referral to this doctor who I do remember his name, Dr. Kimball White, and went to... Hello, doctor. <laughs> and went to um, 
St. Paul's and had a biopsy in my stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> and where's and so we're talking about over the course of eight eight months ish. Not that it mm-hmm. I mean it doesn't really matter, but at twenty eight years old. Yeah. You're sort of getting increasingly concerned and having a like evidence to support your concerns and being told there's no evidence to support your concerns. <laughs> totally. You're like, oh totally. my God. Totally. How is there not? Well, and also that tension too of like having a true health concern happening that you don't want to happen and having the medical community that you can gain access to reinforcing what you want to hear. And so that tension happening, mm. you know, like I did want them to tell me that I was fine. Yeah. And so some of those um, appointments, walking away from it was easier, but then it wouldn't go away. Right. And then just that process. And I think that that's sort of where and how I can relate to this process and the topic of your podcast is Mm -hmm. like what it was like to really think about having death on your table as a young person. And I mean, I don't know, but I would assume that it's not something that you would probably consider in relation to yourself up until this moment where suddenly it's like, oh, now I'm considering this in relation to myself. Like, like, like literally one minute not and the next minute you are. Yeah. And yeah. that, I, I mean, I, I don't have a concept of what that feels like as a, you know, as a young person who probably everyone around you is graduating from university and figuring out med school or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also too, just like back to the topic of things that we don't like to talk about is my father had also had Hodgkin's lymphoma and had died. And as a young person, I was 16 when my dad passed away and no one talked to me about his illness or about what he passed away from. And, and actually, I'm not sure he, there were some complications about his treatment and stuff. Like, I think the story is not that he died from Hodgkin's, but like, in my mind, there were two incongruent stories, right? Where like, or congruent stories where like my dad had had Hodgkin's lymphoma Mm -hmm. and he had died. Right. And I didn't have the filler piece in between it because when he was sick, my family was so confident that he was going to recover that it wasn't something that they needed to bother me with as a, as a young person. And so I think even that as a theme in the conversations of your podcast or in a theme about how we are open or not open is as a person, like those stories never got filled in for me until like years and years, even after my own experience. So like maybe there are people out there who'd be like, ah, if you have a Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis, like the chances of you dying are not that high, Mm. but like that isn't how we receive you have cancer at 28 as you think you're about to try and get into medical school. Right. That isn't, um, you have cancer, the conversation that you think you're going to have while you're still trying to figure out with your partner if, like, you're going to get married and have kids. Like, that just wasn't the, and it was sort of just that that piece about whether or not whatever information I'd received from the, the doctors and through that process early on, too, like, you can only hear what we hear about 
cancer, like just like that fear and the like, oh my God, I hope you beat it. You got this. Like the the beat it conversation. I hope you're a survivor. And like all these people calling you into like, do you want to be in this race or this run or telling you about their aunt and their cousin and all of these things. And oh, people were just like calling with information about what to do. And like their stories were not good and they were generally not helpful. And most of those people passed. So people would tell you like, oh, you should do this and that. Or yeah. do you get really alkaline or something? I'm like, what are you talking yeah. about? I, I'm curious as to, like, I, I think part of, because we're such a, we're so illness phobic and um, kind of disability phobic and then death phobic that yeah. like two hour, I think that no one really knows what to say, but we're sure we should say something. So it's like, oh, I don't know what to say. So I'm just going to fill in this like blank space that I don't know what to say with a bunch of pablum. And I'm imagining what I'm hearing is like to be on the receiving end of the pablum, like 80% of it fucking sucks. It sucks so bad. Yeah. Like, and I think that people just want to be helpful. Like, I actually think that in the process, some of the most like visceral fears and like, kind of the terror in it really existed about telling people Mm. about the illness. Like friends and family were just devastated and each person I had to share the diagnosis with, it was so much energy for me to share it with them. And then it's such a huge process to console them and their feelings of loss and fear around it in that moment. Did your, like, describing that feeling of, like, fear or, like, dread or whatever of sharing the, sharing your diagnosis, did it, like, grow exponentially the more people you had to tell? Because you started to have these experiences and then you're like, oh, my God, what's Peter going to be like? Like, how's this going to go? Or was it just, like, from the start, shitty? I don't know. I think other things started to come up, too, because, like, you're living your life and, like, and I think as a uh, this is totally not going the direction that I thought it was going to go. <laughs> Are you okay with it? Yeah. Do you no, want me to change direction? No, but I think it's just funny. It's like, oh yeah, you just never know how things will unfold. I think that there was just so much profound learning about it. Like, no, I think that, you know, I had to tell the, the first people, like telling my family and my partner, was terrible, but also like they were in the realm of like the diagnosis with the doctor and stuff. Like it didn't need to go out, you know, like they kind of were in that shelf. And so we're we're there. Your sister had been like, this is how you behave with it. Like obviously they know that something they're anticipating that there will be news of some sort. Yeah. 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 So that wasn't that bad. And then it was just a a little, it was challenging to sort of reach out to, you know, some of my friends, just some of my friends, like, let's meet for a coffee. Like, you know, had I been friends with you, like, Hey, Amy, like I got to meet up with you and tell you this thing. And like, some people were like, Oh wow, that's terrible. I would like to say that some people were like that, but no one was like that. Everybody was like, (laughs) Like bawling, like, are you gonna die? <laughs> like, oh, I, and then just like asking me like a million questions that you like, don't have the answer for. Like, they were the patient. Like, oh, yeah. I was like, I didn't even respond in the way that you're responding 
because I know we don't know information yet. And mm. then people just like start sort of like verbally running this track of their experience with cancer and what I should do and not do. And then I think the other piece that was like very complicated about it is like I was deeply shamed. I was so ashamed. You felt ashamed. I, I felt ashamed. Like I was sick. Yeah. And it was inappropriate. Like other people were buying houses or getting married or having kids or, you know, my friends were starting to try and get their med school applications together and like writing the MCAT or whatever. And I was, I had cancer. Yeah. Well, and I felt like was I responsible for it? Was the experiences that I'd been involved in before, the decisions that I'd made before in my life, had they led to this point? I didn't want to tell people about it after a while. And I also, I think the other big shocker about it, um, which I've talked to a few other people, is that um, I didn't have the supports that were in place that I thought were in place. Like, uh, What do you mean? Like personally, in your personal life? Yeah, so medically, like, I had a student medical coverage. Right. Which didn't cover any of the cancer treatment. Oh. oh. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't done my taxes. Wh so I what? didn't have, like... That's the first and only time. <laughs> I didn't have, like, access to fair pharmacare. And there was a whole bunch of stuff that I just wasn't able to do. I didn't have a way to, I couldn't get a job. It was like the end of the semester. Um, I was supposed to be writing final exams. Um, the UBC was not helpful oh, initially. Well, that's too bad. At all. Yeah. And there weren't the same supports in place that exist now. If this were to happen to student, I still work there. I think that there would be processes there, but I ended up relying on the very, like, individual support system that came from maybe four professors who and my department head who went out on a limb to support me through it like academic advising and stuff wasn't there and I didn't even have what was the thing that was I think was so shocking too is like the medication that they thought would be most helpful for something I don't know how things are now but your medication is covered things that you get in the hospital, but things that you need outside of the hospital are up to extended medical. I didn't have any of that kind of coverage. So if you don't have that coverage, you can only get the things that are approved from Fair Pharmacare. Right. And they're not the most up-to-date medication. So nothing that they wanted me to use was on that list. So I needed to get support from an external, like one of those like organizations that supports people who don't have extended medical and they like came to our house and like interviewed us like um it's like funny a, that I can't remember like well I'm assuming I'm assuming and I'm hearing it as like like groups that do like private fundraising and offer like uh like an agency that's like oh yeah. we give people like medication grants and stuff yeah. so that and they came to my house to make sure that we didn't have money oh I was just going to ask, what, what, what were they interviewing you about? And it was fascinating because I asked him, I said, well, I don't really understand how this is working. And he's like, well, if we go to somebody's house who's saying that they don't have extended medical, but they have resources that they could like get rid of, like if I roll up and they have an RV or a boat or they have two vehicles or they have brand new TVs and that kind of stuff, like 
you're making decisions about who is eligible for this. And you were living in an apartment with your partner at the time. Yeah, and we were both students at UBC. Right. So there were no so there boats. Wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't much. <laughs> there wasn't much. How to long see. was the interview? <laughs> there wasn't much to see. But even that was like, you know, I just didn't expect that to be a part of the process. Well, and, and and I think it did really shift how I felt about joining the medical profession or sure. that process. It also, also like re, it has like a very distinct flavor of prove that you're sick enough, prove that you're poor enough. And I felt like that was this huge theme that I was playing out the whole entire time. Like on one hand, there was a group of people that I was trying to convince that I was sick. <laughs> A group of people that I was trying to convince that, like... You're going to be... I'm going to live. That I'm going to live. Yeah. And then this internal kind of space of, like, where I'm like, well, the truth is that I might not make it. Like, there was another woman who um, was the same age as me, and we were in the... uh, Like, in a similar intake space in in one of the times that I was at BC Cancer, and... And it was just interesting because she didn't make it. And we had the same diagnosis and we were the same age. And so, like, there were these other, like, you know, there were other factors going on. And so, like, I just felt like, I don't know, it was just like a real moment at 28, 28, 29. Like, you know, how how do I want to be in this world? How do I want to have conversations? How do I want to approach death? How, how weird is this sit with me what what are what are the ways that i should be and live in these moments if they are the last moments or are they the moments towards the rest of my life and you know while you're considering these things like if these are the last moments and then you're also faced with some like kind of disappointing interactions and disappointing realities about our system that we believe like like we just have this belief about like we're covered we're good but then also you kind of like we have those beliefs around our family and friends that like the people will rally and support and and sometimes I think that looks a lot different than what we need but people still think they're doing it yeah this is not this feels terrible why like it's not like supportive to have to um like comfort you in in this process of me telling you that I'm ill or you know have like meetings or or appointments where I'm having to someone comes into my house to assess whether or not I can I'm trying to trick the system into paying for cancer medication yeah and I don't know if that happens anymore but that was like I don't know either um the situation at the time and I, I think it was just really that too is that we have all these expectations about how if the worst thing happens to you or like this, you know, everybody has, nobody wants to be de- like, Oh, cancer is such a scary word. Um, maybe not making it. We all know people who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just found that that, that whole process was just super isolating too. And it sounds like, it. you know, the, the thing about the medical system, the medical system wasn't what I thought it was. And my family and friends weren't who I thought they were either. Yeah. And, and I think that I have a tremendous amount of forgiveness for them and empathy and understanding and was also really lucky that I'd had a lot of counseling prior to this experience when they suggested that I utilize the counseling services at BC Cancer. I I did, and I really leaned into them, and I got some, like, 
immediate support that I would highly recommend for anybody, um, both people um, uh, facing a cancer diagnosis as a young person or as an old person, as any person, to utilize those supports and to ask your family to come on board with, with people who are looking specifically, because I think there's a lot of things that are unique to that experience that people, you know, we talked the other day about this romanticism mm. um, about how we expect people are going to show up for us. And like, I was like playing out this like romantic story with my partner that he was going to be there for me, like, no matter what. And like, you know, at that point in time, I'm not really sure it's fair to say that I knew exactly where our relationship was, but I did a year later. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, leading up to it, it's like any 28-year-old, like, four years in relationship where you're like, well, like, I'm pretty, I can see a future, but we've got a lot going on and stuff. But a year later, it's like, got it. Yeah. And And in in what way? We weren't dating for four years. We'd been dating for, like, nine years or eight years. Right. At that point in time, too. And so, you know, it was just very interesting. Um, I feel like my partner at the time just, like, really... um, they left, mm. like emotionally right. left the experience. And and so, and I think a lot of friends, they also left, like they couldn't cope, but periphery things were like, maybe I wouldn't say that they were easy for people, but like, I know we have this like GoFundMe thing right now, but I had some friends who actually um, did sort of like a little like funding drive and I'd, I'd been a tree planter and got the tree planting company that I'd work for, AG Reforestation. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, like, I was so ashamed, Amy. I didn't want to ask anybody for money, but, like, I didn't have anything. And everybody assumes that you do. Like, I come from a family who's, like, we're not, nobody's poor or anything. But, yeah. like, I don't think anybody thought, like, oh, wow, like, how do you pay your rent if you're a student and you have to take time off? to go through uh, um, uh, the chemotherapy and the radiation and those processes if you have to stay in the city. And, you know, like there's just a lot lot of like logistical stuff that like you needed, like I didn't feel comfortable to ask for help in the way that maybe some people would have. And lots of people helped. So like I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but... That was just a really hard part of it too, because I think that I had just absolutely believed that as Canadians, we had coverage and we would be supported through any kind of thing like that. Like, of course you have your medication and I'd have this coverage and I'd have... Freaking bummer time to find out you're wrong. I mean, if it happened now, it would actually be a very different story. Of course. Like I have a job at UBC and I've extended medical coverage and I have all these things in place to catch you if this happens, but that there's a bunch of people who fall through the cracks and I think fall through the cracks. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right description about it, but, and then I think the other thing too, that was really challenging was my family. And I think that, um, my family couldn't cope. Mm. They just, what do you like? Do you relate that, and I don't, if you've talked since about it, like, is it, do you think it's partly because of your dad passing of the same diagnosis or like bigger than that? Well, it's just back to the theme of this podcast. Like, let's not talk about it. Right. Like, we didn't talk about it then. We haven't talked about it since. I've had a conversation probably with my sister about it since. And my sister, like, 
just was totally able to take full responsibility for like, she's like, yeah, I couldn't be there for that. You know, like just that kind of thing of like, yeah, my sister and my brother and my mom, they called all the time. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that. Yeah. And my partner at the time, his, his mom ended up being like my wing woman, like the person who showed up and supported me the most through everything and was just like totally astonishing because I think it was just too much emotionally for my family. Like they didn't know how to be there. Um, or for some people, like, I think my mom probably would have stayed beside me the whole entire time, but like, she was rattled right to the core so, so like her presence wasn't necessarily what you oh, wanted she would just be like do you need some water do you need some ice cubes do you need some water do you need some ice cubes do you mm. need to tell do you want to walk a do you know and like her kind of like f- frenetic kind of cadence and pace of like fear and what was going on and trying to help but like not having any tools that energy was so intense i'm trying to fix this just <laughs> yes i'd like some water just so you know i'll still have cancer after you give yeah. me the water <laughs> And my, my sister, my brother, I actually did have a little bit of a laugh about them because, um, everybody tried to take turns with the like chemotherapy treatments. Well, they had the little, the, a spreadsheet like that they shared, they did on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think we did like maybe not a spreadsheet, but we divided it up so I wouldn't have to be alone at any of them. And I, turns out I have really small veins or something. Oh like no. That. So um, chemotherapy treatment that was supposed to take three hours would take eight and a half or oh. 12 hours. So just be there forever. And, uh, yeah, people couldn't stay. Yeah. And, you know, as I got further on, I just realized that it was better to not ask them to. And I so was... that back to that, like isolating piece and like, you know, you know, and it was interesting because I had a friend who um, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, two years ago, and she called me right away and wanted to talk about it. And it was funny. I, I think the first thing I said is like, you got to just be prepared for how people are going to show up and not show up for you. Like for people, this is going to bring up everything in their lives that isn't, isn't working and they want to unload it on you or for other people yeah, are going to kind of hitch themselves to this trauma or a piece of yours. And you just have to protect yourself and to think about how to navigate your health and maintain your energy for what you need to do to get through this process. What was it that your partner's at the time's mom brought to the table that made her like your person throughout this? What were the like the qualities? Was it a like your relationship? Was it certain things she did? How did she show up? That I just don't think that she had any expectation for how anything was going to turn out right. ever. Right. So it was like she just was there. So she didn't have too much to say. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a lot to ask. She listened. Yeah. She was present. She didn't have plans to be somewhere else. Right. At a certain point in time, she had plans to be available after. So it was just like, and she didn't need anything from me. And I found that that's what was happening with friends and families. They needed, oh, so desperately needed you to be okay. Yeah. And how they needed you to be okay was to show up and either like be in good spirits or like I, I felt like the piece about it too, while you're facing you know, this like mortality question is that it was so much energy 
to be around other people, to act okay. Because if you weren't okay, they were, well, just. Unable to cope. <laughs> Unable And to then cope. you're having yeah. to deal with their inability to, to cope. Yeah. And so those are just like, I don't know. I, I think that, um, yeah, I think that that's definitely, you know, even now when we're having this conversation too, like, I think even the only person who I ever really had like a very good follow-up on the experience is with that, with my partners mom was to go back and say like, thank you for all that you did mm -hmm. because that was the only person who was like, I feel like actually was there. Yeah. You know? And like, I'm just so grateful that I had. So that's an interesting thing about presence because it sounds like there were lots of people who are literally present, but there were very few who had the ability to be present. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I, I mean, I think that there's a really pretty obvious difference when when you've experienced um that in a variety of ways like I feel like I I personally have experienced it um when like high high stress working and a bunch of people dying of overdoses yeah and every you know and people want to be supportive but some some people are like let's go have drinks or let's and then and don't want to talk about it and then like very cool so then like one person in my life was like we'll just sit on the couch and like hang out and we don't have to talk about it. And I was like, yeah. and I know that's like not at all a comparison to you, but like that, the, the difference is stark. And like, you start to realize like, I don't know if this, like it's not better than nothing to have someone around all the time. Yeah. And then I think also too, then you have like a huge tension, like, and I know this like for all of like the listeners to this podcast on it too, is like, if you're dealing with a family member or a friend who may be only here for a short while, what presence do you want to show them in those last days or mm. weeks or months and stuff? And like, that's sort of the challenges I think that people need to step back and maybe recognize that they might need to do a little work themselves to show up for somebody if that is their intention to do. Because I've seen that before where people are like, oh, I'm really there for somebody in their dying days. I'm like, yeah, but I'm pretty sure you're taking up way more of their energy than you think they are. Mm. Like your presence is actually quite taxing on the situation because you're like, you're vulnerable or like, you know, so I, I think that sometimes people, people should check in or ask, I don't know, ask if they're helpful. I, I feel like there's, you know, those conversations about, even what you've done with some of the other people that you've worked with, like having an idea of what kind of things would be supportive to somebody closer to the time or if something comes up, like how do people want to be interacted with when they're sick? And I think that that... Because we're not the same. No, totally. And I, and I think that that is with every person I've talked to. There are some things that are similar, but there's so many things. And some of it's like really specific minutia. Like yeah. I really want to feel this type of fabric against my skin and I want to hear this music and I would love this chapter of this book. And I don't care what, like that's, if people are scared to come and visit me, tell them to come and and read this chapter. Uh, Task-based. Yeah. You can come and read me this. Like I don't want someone to come with like scared energy or feeling sorry for me energy or like that. that is a big theme, particularly as I've talked to people as they age. Like, yeah huge theme of not wanting to be a burden and I'm like okay but can we unpack that a little bit this word burden and what that means like we 
are meant to, or maybe we're not meant to, show up for each other. And that is a burden. Yeah. And so how do we navigate that? And it, to me, like one way is these, like, I mean, obviously at 28 years old, you're not having prior to your diagnosis, like a conversation around here's what, how you can show up for me. Um, so it's not like you had that pre-planned or anything, but. And that being said, they're now conversations that I have had with my close friends about what I would like to see or do or what my expectations are. Not my expectations are, are, but like some of those conversations, it's been a part that to my life. I mean, some of those people might think I'm joking. <laughs> Tell me, some, give me some examples. I feel, I feel like we've talked about it. Yeah. And maybe I thought you were joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess the other thing too that I wanted to say too is like, Sometimes there's some some like celebratory or recognition things around being sick that I felt were also really hard. Like I did, um, I felt like those, um, a lot of those like cancer drives, like that really for life or right. the ride to conquer cancer or something like once you're like a cancer survivor, there's like this pressure that you should like participate in them and yeah. fundraise and be a part of this like culture of survivor. Mm. And that was also a huge struggle for me because I didn't want to become situated in that diagnosis as I moved forward in my life once I did go into remission. Well, so you were diagnosed when you were 28 went through the did your treatment start pretty quickly because you yeah, said right it was away. stage four right away and how long was did the treatment piece take you know amy i've like blocked out so much of it it's yeah. like we're like 15 years plus out yes and like i just feel like there's so many pieces of it i'm like i don't know maybe it was eight months maybe it was six months maybe it was a year right um but yeah it happened right away and uh yeah, I just think that that was also a really weird thing about people wanting to like, I hosted a big fundraiser during it for the Cancer Society. Oh, and I, was, I thought you were going to say for yourself, but I guess you, as you mentioned, that was like not a piece you were comfortable doing. No, it didn't feel comfortable at all. Yeah. And it was an easy way to do it for yourself in a way, too, because I had benefited from those organizations. Sure, right? but they so, weren't paying your rent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally. And I remember I did the ride to conquer cancer and like I it was a beautiful experience with my friends and they did it, I think, in in solidarity and support of my experience and the experiences that they'd have for other people. But sorry, well, once you were in remission. Yeah. And close to like. Yeah, like maybe like it was like a year after, okay. two, two years, three years after. Yeah. But it was funny too because when you're riding down, like all of the places you ride through, people are like holding up these signs to talk about the people that they've lost. Oh, God. <laughs> and it's funny because we're, we're different people and like I could see how for some people riding, maybe that would be really incredible, but it was horrific for me yeah I never talked to anybody about this before but yeah. like I feel like I've had like a very strong like um resistance maybe to some of those like kind of like how, how do we have those spaces and I understand the benefit of those kind of processes and what they raise money for like as I mentioned um the counseling that I was able to to do and the groups that they had available 
were incredible. And so I know that funding comes from them for some ways, but also how different it was for uh, early life diagnosis versus later in life. Like people take it quite differently. Sure. When I was chatting with Ryan, I, I, I sort of, and even when I've listened to it since, I've realized that um, there are certain sort of un, like things we take for granted or perfunctory things that we do um, thinking that they're helpful and or universally helpful. Like, yeah, that's the key. Yeah. So like, you know what, we have Clementine here, which is great because uh, Motley was in the, the interview with, um, with Ryan, yeah. and I think they might get along if they met. Right. Clementine wants to be everyone's friend. Yes. Motley has not very many, but random and for no reason intense enemies. And then is pretty friendly with everyone else. Right. So hopefully Clementine isn't one of wouldn't be one of his enemies because it it comes out of nowhere. Well, they've both been on the podcast now, so yeah, they're famous. Yeah. Um. Sorry. Uh. Bit of a digression. <laughs> Due to frolicking dog. Um. Yeah. I. This sort of thinking around. Oh, this will be helpful. Yeah. I think that's the key. You said uh, universally universally mm. helpful. Yeah. Which is not always the case it's 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 difficult when you have to have such a big umbrella to uh, encompass everyone and everything and their needs and sometimes it just doesn't yeah and I think like when I was listening to Rayanne describe her experience doing the ride to conquer cancer I suddenly was like oh my god of course that wouldn't be great for everyone right right so uh in the next section um I think it's a nice segue into, you know, her talking about things that Ryan talking about things that sort of didn't work for her, things that she found challenging that others have found comforting. Yeah. Um, the next section really touches on how Ryan lives and like, I, I know her very well and Mm. she, her day-to-day decision-making is very different from mine and whether or not that's a hundred percent, attributed to having experienced an illness she certainly is a seize the day type person right i've always appreciated that about her yeah it seems like the ideal way to um, go about it to think about it yeah Um, and you're right i wonder if not having this experience would have led to the same mentality but at any rate it's nice to uh, hear that perspective and it's something, you know, you and I can, or I certainly will think about it. Sure. Going forward. So yeah. I'm glad she shared. Me too. Thanks, Rai. So what are the things that, like you mentioned before, what are the, some of the things like that you may or may not be joking? Let's just get it out there. You're not joking. What are some of the things that you have said now? Because I think I have always like, Right, you're someone who if there's if you get invited, you're going. And I'm <laughs> I'm like someone if I'm getting invited, I'm probably gonna bail. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm just gonna straight up say no. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that necessarily has to do with the fact that you had a cancer diagnosis when you were young and I didn't, but yeah. I think there is a piece about like how choices you make and how you choose to live now that is informed by that. Yeah. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I think that when I think about the choices that I'm making, I want to live my fullest, funnest life with the people that I care about as much as I can. And I want to spend time in places where I don't have particularly complicated relationships mm. either, you know, where like the communication is a bit better. So they have opportunities to sort of share where I'm at. Um, and so that's been really important to me. And I, I do want to show up for things that are, I want to have fun and I want to make choices that, yeah, I don't want to get too caught up in sort of the, the harder parts of life because I, I think I really strongly recognize and understand that we might not be here for a long time, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that even coming out of my experience, like I, they gave me all those like stats too. Like it's likely, you know, that not that they're not saying that it's likely that it'll come back, but like, I don't think that I'm going to push through to like 80 in the same way. Like, I just feel like I have a very different approach, even when I think about like retirement or moving forward in my life, like how long I'm going to be here. And so that also changes how I think about like in general, a lot of the decisions in my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. So I think that those are, but I also, I, I want to say like, that doesn't mean, and I, and I, I don't think it sounds that way, but I just want to say, it doesn't mean that you're not someone who, like you take things seriously and things are important to you. Yeah. Like that's not, I would never say that concurrently, like she's like off at work, not doing it. Like yeah. you do take, like you're an excellent friend. You show up for people like you are, care very much about being good and present and kind. And I want to continue to build strong communities where people feel connected to each other because at any moment, those connections can be broken and mm -hmm. they can be broken by poor communication that isn't to do with loss by death. But there's like a lot of loss and grieving in our lives. And like, I think that you should recognize the good times and the good, good connections while they're here and be grateful for them because we just don't know that. Like I, when I think about even my dad and never really having that conversation with my family. Like my mom came here with us and I didn't really know the history of what had happened with my parents. And I sort of had this idea that I was going to have this opportunity to reconnect with him. Like, you mm. know, as soon as I grew up and it was up to me, I would be able to go back to Trinidad and I would be able to rekindle this relationship and have this connection with him. And he died. Yeah. You know, and so I think that that's like one of those things. I'm not saying that in every moment I'm thinking like, oh, this could be our last moment together. But like sometimes. Yeah. And probably for me, way more than other people, I am thinking that. Yeah. Like, yeah, go on this trip. Well, I wasn't recording. <laughs> the peanut gallery, that might as well be Clementine. <laughs> Now we are recording. Interstitch number two. Number two. Number two. We're back. They're close together. Um, and well, I thought like this is a particular, like an important um, thing to introduce in um, independent of other things because I think it's broadly applicable. Right. So for everyone listening, for myself, the idea around how we show up for others who are ill Ryan gives some thoughts. They're not like, this is how you do it. Step one, step two, step three. It's yeah. all very like individual focused. Right. 
but she brings up some really good and important points about consent Mm -hmm. and about our own judgments Mm -hmm. and how what is helpful and what isn't yeah again a very a great perspective to hear because it's just something you don't necessarily think about i think your own when you go visit someone who uh, you want to help it's it's hard to not hard but sometimes you lose the plot on what you're doing there yeah you're not helping or yeah making it worse so it's really nice to hear this perspective of yeah and I think also that sort of feeling of losing the plot or feeling like what the hell am I doing can result in people stopping trying right and withdrawing and Mm -hmm. that is certainly something that which is why it's hard to talk about yeah exactly Mm. so this is uh, a great little section Uh, and Ryan shines like a bright light (laughs) indeed What about, um, like, showing up and presence in illness? Do you have, I mean, we've just talked about a bunch of, like, ways that it was not great at that time. Are there things, like, it's, it's, are there specifics now that you would say, hey, here's how you can show up for me in illness? Are there yeah. things that you do that you show up for people in illness? Tangibles. I think that you just, like absolutely have to respect the person's autonomy to decide their own path. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I have heard of so many people who, you know, they're dealing with an illness and they've decided to use an alternative therapy or they've decided to do something else or they've decided to talk to a different physician or they, you know, um, I feel like you need to respect people's wishes about how they want to navigate their illness and their health and be supportive of it. I also think that people should like, not should, but like, um, lean into the support of professional care people, Mm. you know, like really don't lean on your sister or your parent or your friend, like get, the supports that we have in place. Like, I don't think our medical system is amazing, but when it comes to illness and stuff, some of that, like, I think sometimes people can be really negative about what supports are in place. And, you know, I don't know, I guess. Yeah. I think for sure that you need to be respectful of people. And I, and I feel like I've had, I've sat there, people have told me some stuff and I like, I I try and like calm my face and be like, wow, this person is afraid or this person is scared. Like listen to them, create space for their story, Mm -hmm. try and lead them back to mental health care professionals and the supports that exist for that specific situation. Like, you know, it, it, it helps like the things that I went through were not unique and they were not special. Um, to me. And the more that I reached out and took part of the, I was in a, a group therapy for young people with cancer diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. Yeah. I got to talk to other people who were navigating similar stories or different techniques or, that they had come up with or, or things that would were helpful to them. And that was so valuable. Like 
Don't allow yourself to become isolated and don't put your stories or your thoughts or your wishes or experiences on the ill. Like, I hate the story of like, my cousin da, 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 also had the kind of cancer that you had mm. and they did this, 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 this. Like, you know, I think you should ask people, it comes back to the, almost like the consent thing. Like, hey, Amy, wow, I'm really sorry to hear about that diagnosis. Would it be helpful to you to hear about some of the insights that I've heard from other people? Right. Would you... Do you have the capacity to, yeah. or would you like me to just sit here and be quiet? Would it be helpful if I refer, if I can make this referral to another doctor? Mm. Like having those conversations, like I would almost think of making them like really consent based, yeah. you know, like to invite a conversation that feels respectful and that you understand where that person is and that you're not trying to apply a bunch of judgments or, or um, your perceptions on them about how they should navigate their time. And I think that that's so important. I, I like, I don't want to do it. Sometimes, like when somebody's like, well, I don't know, I don't believe in conventional medicine, so I'm not going to get seek treatment. I'm like, I want to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Walk through that. But like, it's not your role and it's not your place and it's not respectful. Mm -hmm. Like, we need to show up for each other as we've been asked to show up. And, and I think in those places, sometimes you, you know, you want to create space for people to share how they even got to that decision. Cause I think sometimes people have decided to do stuff like that because somebody who's really aggressive in their family has made them do that. And we're weak and we're sick and, and people are like coming at you with these like ideas about what you should do. And that's, it's just, it's very, you know, this is not a direct parallel. So I'm not suggesting that this was a similar experience, but yeah. I remember the first time and I just like at the time I was like, what? The first time in when I was uh, like, this is probably like 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I was working very closely with this woman who we were the same age and I found her having uh, after she died of an overdose, I was the one who found her. Um, and that was the first time that like in my career, that was right at the beginning. That was the first time that had happened. Very upsetting. And I remember there was like a leadership person that was around at the time yeah. who I didn't like have a, a great relationship with, not a bad, like just didn't really have a relationship with. And she said to me, well, I'm not a hugger and I know you're not either, but I'm going to hug you right now. And then she put her arms around me and hugged me. And I was like, who is this for? Like, I don't want this. You definitely don't want this. What's happening? What's your motivation? And I was like, this is so weird. I hate this. And then like, she like dropped her hands and like marched away. And I was like, okay, great lesson for me to like, now I have something in my never fucking do this column <laughs> in terms of like supporting someone, which I guess that's you know, beneficial. and and I think that's exactly it. That comes back to like, yeah, we're talking about it all the time too about consent. Like, you slow your role, yeah, and you ask what you're being asked, and you manage your emotions in the face of somebody else's illness too. Like, you're somebody's sharing something that's like really powerful and really like disruptive to their life, and you having a melty or needing to be consoled yes. or supported. And for people who have, uh, are facing death and, and, or, 
diagnosis or illness too, is like remembering what kind of capacity you can have for forgiveness for people who aren't ready to do that kind of work, you know, and, and not holding it against them. Like I love my family and, Mm -hmm. you know, I never stopped loving my partner through that process. And like, I just don't, think that it was helpful to be angry at any of those people for how they showed up and understanding that for those people who are closest to us, it's just super hard. Yeah. And I think this type of conversation is a kindness for people who might listen to this and then reflect on, or the next day hear about a loved one or they themselves, or it's a kindness because I, just, I think that people want to, for the most part, they want to show up in the right way. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that like no one does or very few people do. Yeah. I think it's really awesome that you talk to me about this because I, it's funny because I don't think you and I ever actually talked about the fact that like, I think truthfully, like I met you and someone was like, Rye had cancer. Like, t- ten- and I was like, oh, like, uh, oh, all right. So that's part of her portfolio that you're sharing with me. And you and I, I don't think we talked about it until like. Even now, it's very like when I when I say to people like I had cancer, like people recoil. Yeah. Yeah. And apply a bunch of judgments sure. immediately. Like if you're a cancer survivor, these are my expectations for how you should lead your life. And you're not meeting them. Yeah. And so that's like another piece that I think is just like really interesting too, because like people forget about their sort of like unrelenting judgments that we put into people about what you should eat, how you should live, how much you should exercise, what kind of choices you should make. Like, I'm like, I'm going to live my best life. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, and then also remembering to do the same thing for other people when they tell me how they want to live their life. Yeah. You know, so... Let's do it. High five. High five. (laughs) (laughs) That was Ryan. That was Ryan. That is uh, Ryan and my friendship. Actually, we don't have conversations like that all the time. (laughs) Sometimes we It's too bad because that was uh, incredible. Oh, well, you know, uh, it it was a great conversation. Yeah. Um, And I was, it flowed very well. Yeah. And I think we kind of had fun doing it. Yeah. But also, um, I, I got to know Rye so much better. We all did. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I think is partly, you know, a testament to Ryan and her character, but also just generally speaking about the human condition, um, when she talks about sort of her, her and like bigger picture, our capacity for forgiveness and, reflecting on and understanding while she had these experiences that in the moment were made a very challenging thing, more challenging from the people that she loved or the people who are closest to her. Yeah. She's also a thoughtful person who's able to reflect on it and gain more understanding of why and have the capacity for forgiveness and still retains all the love she has. And then also has the strength to take those lessons and pass them on to others. So in this, like 
really challenging time where she can think and talk about these things that happen. She has that ability to, okay, I understand and I forgive. Also, I need to share this. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way it unfolded uh, in that, like the emotions, the range of emotions that uh, Ryan took us through mm. um, was, was so thoughtful and articulate and, and, you know, it just comes around to how she felt and how the other people felt around them. And, and it just made me think about being in the position, being in the position of like, maybe one day I'll be sick or maybe a, a loved one will be sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I said it before, try and be present, but I think it, it, it goes both ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she kind of, uh, you know, talked about that a little bit it's a it's a difficult experience to um you know to tell somebody else about to, mm-hmm. to go through that and to have all these emotions on top of the physical part of it um and to be able to have that capacity to uh uh break it down in the way that she did and that the way that you guys talked about was you know um We've said it before, but very generous and, and a gift to uh, everyone who made a made a choice to listen to it. So um, lots for me to think about, and mm. I think lots of for uh, other people to think about and continue to think about. Absolutely, and I was so it's so exciting that we get to introduce the world to our fifth remarkable person, Ryan. Indeed, and uh, you know, let's keep the conversation going. All right. Thanks, Amy. Okay. Bye, Miles. <laughs>